The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Well, it is great to be with you for this weekend for the second part of this uh, very important series called For the Broken. And the reason why this series is so important as we, uh, as we go through this as a church is because the church is filled with broken people, and broken people, they hurt broken people. And when that happens, it can be incredibly difficult for people who are broken to actually have real hope, especially when that brokenness has been in some way caused by the church. Now, this series isn't about beating up on, on religious people. Instead, the whole point of this series is to actually point out the failure of religion, because religion is always about a system that determines your standing based on your behavior. But see, we believe that's not what Jesus intended. We believe that Jesus actually offers something better. And we believe that Jesus wants to heal the damage that's been done. And so last week we began this series by looking at one of Jesus' most famous parables. It was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, um, last week what we discovered is this isn't just simply a story that Jesus told about being kind to people who are in need. No, this is actually much bigger than that. This is actually a story that Jesus told to help us understand exactly who he is and exactly why he has come into this world, which is to undo the damage that has been done and has left people for broken on the side of the road and to point out that religion has never been able to undo that damage. The only thing that it can do is simply neglect those who are broken. Now today, we're going to kind of look below the surface of that brokenness a little bit, because, because whenever people are broken by religion, the hurt that's actually caused is a, is a very big hurt. It's not a, a little hurt. It's a very deep, very emotional hurt. And so today, we are going to look at an incredible story that occurs in the life of Jesus as he is confronted by a group of people. Take out your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 8. If you're using one of those Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 1,661. Now, as soon as you uh, open to this story today, um, for for probably 90% of you, I I would guess that you've probably heard this story before. And so there's going to be a tendency for some of you to want to kind of just rush to the end of the story um, before we, we get there. But in order for you to really understand the emotion and the tension and the drama in this story today, I need you to try to resist that as best as you can, because this is really an incredibly emotional story. And it's a story that in order to understand the emotion behind, you have to know and understand the context of where it is that this story takes place. Because this story actually takes place in what you and I would think of and call church. The story takes place at a location that was known in Jesus' day as the Temple Mount. And the Temple Mount was where the Jewish temple actually stood. Now, this is a a current picture of this site today. And and you can kind of see the outline here. These are the walls that, that surround the Temple Mount. This is the southern wall here. This is the western wall over here, which is known as the Wailing Wall. You might have heard to it referred that way before because it was actually a part of the original temple before it was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, um, there's three in, in the world today, there's actually three different structures that reside on the Temple Mount, none of which are Jewish. Um, there's the Dome of the Rock, there's the Dome of the Chain, 
And then down here is the Marawani Mosque. And so this is a holy site for both um, Jewish people, but also um, Muslim people in our world today, which is why it's such a contested place in our world today. But, but in, in Jesus' day, this site was the center of everything that was Jewish, because on top of this 30-acre site, the Temple Mount, stood a building that no longer exists in our world today, which was simply known as the Jewish Temple. And it was inside this temple that the Holy of Holies was found inside of this building, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. It's where the Ten Commandments were kept. It's where the giant curtain that was hung that actually split from top to bottom on Good Friday, that's where that curtain was found as well. And then outside of the temple, um, kind of moving in, in concentric um, circles almost, in squares actually, um, was a series of very high walls and very high gates creating what were known as the temple courts. And so inside here was the court of the women. Outside here around this edge was the court of the Gentiles. And so this was a very public place. It was a very crowded place. And it was the holiest place in all of ancient Judaism. We're going to go back to this first picture for just a moment. This wall, this southern wall across the Temple Mount is about 900 feet wide, if you can picture that. And then right in the center of these wall, this wall is a series of stairs. Now we're going to zoom in on the, that staircase for a moment. These stairs themselves are 240 feet wide, and they led up to the outer gate of the temple. And so everybody who wanted to enter into the temple had to go up these stairs and pass through that gate, which meant that these were actually the steps. This was the path to atonement. And this is where the story that we're about to read together in John chapter 8 actually takes place. Because again, these were the steps to forgiveness. This was the path to forgiveness because week after week month after month Jewish people they would climb up these steps and they would carry with them their sin but then they would also bring with them an animal which was to be the sacrifice for their sin and so they would walk up these steps they would enter that gate they would stand before an altar and they would leave both their sin and that dead animal at that altar and then they would once again descend down these very same steps knowing that their relationship with God had been restored, that their guilt was now gone. And that's the context for this account that takes place between Jesus and this group of people who confront him in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. John tells us that at dawn, right, at dawn, so this is actually an important an important note in the story. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him and he sat down and he began to teach them because everywhere that Jesus went, there was always these crowds of people that were following him. And so Jesus, he arrives at the temple and as he's arriving at the temple, there's these crowds of people following him. Up the stairs they go, stair by stair, step by step. Jesus finds a place on the temple grounds and he sits everyone down and he begins to teach them right at dawn. So this is very, very early in the morning. Verse 3, then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, okay, so we're going to pause here for just a moment. Because one of the things that we miss in this story that we just kind of go right over is, is maybe the most obvious question. Because again, this whole thing happens at dawn. 
Right? So where in the world have these scribes and these Pharisees been all night long? Where have they had this woman hidden away all night long? Because the obvious question here, the thing that we have to think about, is what's really going on here? And see, the answer to this question is that when these scribes and these Pharisees, when they caught this woman in the act of adultery, the question was not, what do we do with this woman? No, the question was, the situation was, we now have the perfect opportunity to trap Jesus. And so when they got word that Jesus had actually entered the temple, that he had gone on the steps, that he had found a place on the mount, that there was an audience of people sitting around him, seated, waiting for him to start teaching. Picture this. right? These religious leaders, they go to wherever they've had this woman hidden all night long, and they take her, and they drag her through the city, through the steps, up the gate, through the court of the Gentiles, up the gate, into the court of the women, right outside of the Holy of Holies, so they can make their point. Which is that religion never saves. All it can do is destroy. All it can do is condemn. Because the only thing religion is actually interested in is behavior, specifically your behavior. And so this is going to be a public spectacle. In fact, they want it to be a public spectacle because they have an agenda and the agenda is not the welfare of this woman. They look at Jesus and they say, Teacher, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, right? In the very act. As in, you remember Jesus, right? Thou shall not commit adultery, Right? This isn't some random law, Jesus. No, this is actually one of the top ten. You, you, you remember that, right, Jesus? And, and this woman, it's not a rumor. Right? It's not a rumor because she was caught in the act. And see, we, we've, we've held on to her for this moment. I mean, picture this. The crowd, it just goes silent, right? And undoubtedly, a larger crowd begins to form. Because, see, they've all, all the people have seen these religious people in their white robes walking throughout the city. They've seen these men in their religious robes bring this woman across the city, up to the temple. And this is the last place that she wants to be. Because she is guilty. And see, the truth is, for some of you today, you can actually relate to this because you're in church and you're here today and you're uncomfortable. And in fact, maybe you've been nervous ever since you walked through those doors. Maybe for some of you today, you can relate to this because you've been made into a public spectacle before in your life. You you can relate to this because, because, yeah, you were broken. And yes, your behavior was wrong. You don't deny that. But see, your behavior was actually used as a weapon against you by another group of people who were out to destroy you. And when you needed hope, the only thing that you got was shame. When you needed forgiveness, the only thing that you got was guilt. When you were alone and you were abandoned and you needed strength, the only thing that you got was fear. This Jewish woman had been in the temple so many times, hundreds of times before this moment, every time bringing a sacrifice for her sin. And yet today, she was going to be the sacrifice for her sin. And if she was not overwhelmed with her sin and her guilt before, she could not miss it now. I mean, can you feel the tension in this story? Verse 5. 
In the law, right, so these religious leaders, now they're going to explain their religion to Jesus, right? In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And so Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? And see, Jesus, he really could have said a whole bunch of different things to this woman. He could have simply looked at these religious leaders and said, well, go ahead, stone her. Go ahead, just stone her. I mean, if you're so certain of her guilt, right, if you know what it is that the law commands, if you know what it is that Moses commands, then just go ahead. Just go ahead. Go ahead and stone her. Why did you have to drag her all the way here if you already know what the law says, if you already know what Moses has commanded? Or Jesus could have looked at them, and and he could have said to them, well, you know, actually, what Moses said was this, right? If a man, who's missing from this picture right now, right? If a man actually commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. See, they're not interested in this woman. They don't even care about following their own rules. They're simply out to try to prove a point. And in case we haven't figured that out yet, John makes sure that we understand that in the very next verse. And he says in verse 6, they were simply using this question. In fact, they were also using this woman as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Because see, their goal, their goal was always to try to find a way to somehow divide Jesus from the people. And see, now they have a crowd. Now they're in the perfect spot. Now they have the perfect opportunity to divide Jesus from the people because if Jesus sides against Moses and if Jesus sides against the law and if Jesus sides against the the temple, then certainly Jesus is going to lose his popularity with the people. I mean, they had planned it so carefully and everything was working out exactly as they had planned. They wanted a public spectacle and now they had one. Right, because these religious leaders, what they wanted was Jesus versus Moses, Jesus versus the temple, and Jesus versus the commandments. And Jesus, no, we really don't have any concern whatsoever for this woman. Right, see, I'm telling you, as, as, as dramatic as I try to make this story, right, it is hard to even comprehend the emotion and the drama and the tension in that moment when at dawn Jesus looked into the eyes of this poor woman who was nothing but a means to these people's end. And maybe, I don't know, because the scripture doesn't tell us, but maybe this was actually one of those moments When even Jesus' disciples, when they just kind of began to sink into the crowd a little bit. Because it kind of looked like that maybe this one isn't going to go so well. Maybe this one isn't going to actually go in Jesus' favor. Because, I mean, these religious leaders, I mean, they're so right. They're so right. And we're here. I mean, we're in the temple. I mean, we're on their turf. In fact, John even tells us that Jesus at this point, he just bent down and he began to write on the ground with his finger. And John, he waited. Jesus, John tells us that Jesus just waited and he waited 
But the longer he waited, the louder they got. He tells us in verse 7 that when they kept on questioning Jesus. In other words, they're simply saying, Jesus, give us an answer. Jesus, give us an answer. And see, the longer Jesus waited and the more silent Jesus was, the more certain these people were that they had him, that they had finally trapped him, that we have finally won. We finally exposed Jesus. We finally have him exactly where we want him. But see, Jesus, he was just giving them time. He was simply giving them time. Time to not only expose their hearts to the people around them, but also time to expose their hearts to themselves. Because John tells us that when they kept on questioning him, Jesus, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. They had their spectacle, but it wasn't the spectacle that they expected. Because see, this was Jesus versus shame. This was Jesus versus guilt. This was Jesus versus fear. He who is among you without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, do not forget where it is that we are standing right now. And suddenly the context for this entire conversation comes tumbling in on top of these religious leaders because they are standing within the courts of the very temple whose only purpose for existing was to atone for what it is that sin had destroyed in this world. He who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And the amazing thing was this. There was one among them that day who had no sin. And he was the only one who had no stone. And once again, Jesus stooped onto the ground and he wrote with his finger. And John tells us at this, At this, when the context of the situation finally dawned on them. At this, where they were and what they were about to do, and when perhaps the number of times that they themselves actually deserved to be stoned for their own sin. At this, John tells us, when their self-righteousness, right? In fact, if you read through the Gospels, it's the only sin that Jesus ever truly loses it over. At this, when their self-righteousness, when that had finally dawned on them and when it exposed their hearts for who and what they really were, at this, John tells us, that those who heard, they began to go away. And again, imagine this. You've got to picture this in your minds. If you don't know where this story took place, you miss this completely. Where did they go away from? Where did they go away from? Again, they walked away from the temple. They left the temple. They walked through the gate. They walked down the steps. And they walked away from the presence of God's activity on earth. 
And it's John who gives us this incredibly interesting little detail. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. The ones who had actually made the most trips to the temple to sacrifice for their own sin. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there, with the Lamb of God in the temple of God, with the sound of sheep being sacrificed in the background. Can you even picture this moment? And Jesus, he straightened up. And he looks at the woman and he asks her, Woman, where are they? Where did they go? Did they disappear? What happened? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now understand, this question does not mean did no one accuse you because she had been accused. The question does not mean are you guilty because clearly she was. She never denied her guilt. What the question really means is simply this. Listen, is there no one here who is forcing you to pay for what it is that you have done? Is there no one condemning you? Is there no one left to force you, to force you to pay for what you have done? No one, sir. No one, sir, she says. And Jesus responds to her, are you ready for this? Because see, for some of you today, this is why you're here. These next words of Jesus are why you are here today. And for some of you today, listen, I get it. I understand it. For some of you today, these words that you so desperately need to hear, you have lived your life thinking you would never hear these words. You actually thought you would never hear these words spoken to you. Maybe you thought that even if you did hear these words, that they couldn't possibly be for you. That they could be for somebody else, but they couldn't be true for you. Listen, I get it. I've been there. I've been there. And so Jesus looks at this woman just as Jesus looks at you today. And he said to her as he says to you today, then neither do I then neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. I will not force you to pay for what you have done. And see, by saying this, Jesus declared to all those who were there that day and all who would read about this account for the next two thousand years i am greater than shame i am greater than guilt i am greater than fear i am greater than the sacrificial system in fact i am greater than religion itself and very soon after this event the world would learn that jesus was actually here to replace all of it And then what Jesus says next, if we're honest, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, what Jesus says next, if we're honest, we're probably tempted to dismiss. 
In fact, you've probably heard these words before and maybe you actually wrote them off because you thought they were too unrealistic. You thought it's not possible. You thought it can't possibly mean what it's saying. And these very next words of Jesus are in fact an invitation. They are an invitation to every single man, woman, and child who hears them. But these next words, they come with a very, very different tone than perhaps you're used to hearing. Because Jesus looks into the eyes of this woman just as he looks into your eyes today, and he says, then go now. Go now. And leave your life of sin. You're free to go. But when you go, leave. Leave your life of sin. You're free I mean, you are free. You can go. You do not have to stay here. But when you go, leave. Leave your life of sin. See, this is the tone of Jesus. And this is the tone of Jesus towards sinners who not only have sin, but who are actually caught in their sin and who admit their sin. And listen, this may not be the tone of the church that you grew up in. This may not be the tone of your mother or the tone of your father. It may not be the tone of other Christians that you know. It may not be the tone of your neighbor or your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law. But this is the tone. This is the tone of Jesus. And see, in this moment, Jesus is showing, he is showing all of us. He is showing us his heart towards sinners. And his heart and his tone was not condemning. His heart and his tone was always one of compassion. He urged, he did not condemn. He urged, he never condemned. He urges us, he urges you to leave your life of sin. Because see, Jesus knew. He knew what all of us eventually discover. He knew what you know, what you've discovered. Which is that sin always comes prepackaged, doesn't it? It always comes prepackaged with a penalty. You know this. You've experienced this. Because every time you sin, every time I sin, something dies. Every time we sin, sin kills things. Sin, over time, it will kill your conscience. Right? Some of you have experienced that. Maybe you even sit there and you think to yourself today, there are some things that I do in my life that used to bother me. They probably should still bother me, but they don't bother me. That's probably not good. Right? Sin over time will kill your mind. Sin will ultimately kill your body. Sin will kill your self-respect. Sin will kill your relationships. For, for many of you, listen, this is why you do not have to be convinced that there is right and there is wrong, do you? Because you've experienced it. You know it. You know when it's happened to you and you know when you've done it to somebody else. Sin can kill a family. Sin can kill a marriage. Sin can kill the relationship between a parent and a child. Sin even has the power to kill an entire culture. And so Jesus, he urges her, he urges us, leave your life of sin. Jesus says, listen, I do not need to punish you. I do not need to condemn you because your sin, your sin has already, it's already punished you. Your sin has already hurt you. Your sin has already killed your relationship in this community. That's what shame always does. And so he says to this woman, just please leave. Leave your life of sin. 
Because see, don't miss this. The message of religion is that when you sin, you break God's law. But the message of Jesus is when you sin, you break God's heart. You break God's heart. And in that moment when we understand that our sin actually breaks God's heart, in that moment when we confess and we admit our sin to Him, guilt and shame and fear lose their power and they are undone by the love of your Heavenly Father. And so Jesus urges us, He urges all of us, leave your life of sin. And see, understand this, understand this. It is the consequence of sin. That is the reason why Jesus actually urges all of us. That's why he urges all of us to leave our lives of sin. And see, here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing, right? A little while later, after this event, what we just celebrated together two weeks ago, it happened. It happened. And see, the, 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 Jesus would actually die for all of her sin and for all of your sin and for all of my sin. And see, the reason that we know that Jesus' tone towards this woman was one of urging and not one of condemning, the reason we know that, it's actually quite obvious. Because when somebody is actually willing to die for you, you never have to question how they feel about you. When someone is willing to lay down their life for you, you never have to question, what does he really think? What does he really feel about me? And see, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he was about to shed his blood for this woman's sin. And so he urged her. He urged her, leave your life of sin, not because God will get you, but because sin will kill you. Not because God will get you, but because Jesus has died for you. And so leave. Leave, Jesus says. Leave your life of sin because your sin has already, it's already been paid for. In the words of Philip Yancey many, many, many years ago, God He actually took an incredible risk by announcing your forgiveness ahead of time. And so your Heavenly Father, whose love for you you never have to doubt, whose love for you you never have to question, He urges you. He urges you. Leave. Leave your life of sin. Because my son has died for you. Heavenly Father, every single one of us here this morning, every single one of us listening to the amazing words of this event, Father, we know exactly where this message lies for us this morning. And Father, the truth is probably for many of us today, The truth is probably we have resisted messages like this maybe because of the tone that we felt or because it was obvious that somebody had an agenda. And Father, I pray that 
that for all of us today that we would understand that the only agenda that you have, the only agenda that you've ever had, is to undo what guilt and shame and fear have actually done to us. And so, Father, I pray that in these next few moments that you would hear every single one of us as we personally and silently bring our sin and our brokenness, as we bring our guilt and our shame and our fear, and we lay that at your feet, Jesus, as we lay that at your cross. Father, my prayer this morning as we prepare to receive the body and the blood of your Son who is our Savior, Jesus, I pray that for each one of us we would hear the voice of Jesus saying to us today, I do not condemn you. There is nobody here who is forcing you to pay for what you have done. You're forgiven. You are free. You can go because I have paid for what you owe. And Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us away from the sin, Jesus, for which you died. It's all this in your name that we pray. Amen. Would the ushers and lay ministers please come forward? It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat, this is my body. After supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Take and drink all of you, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me.